Welcome back, my friends, to the Shema podcast and part two of Moments of Spiritual Ascension with Rabbi Busco. Welcome to the Shema podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. There's some truth to the outcome, but the perspective is very immature. And uh, we, we deserve to have a more sophisticated understanding of what's really happening here. And I think the best definition for judgment would be definition, interestingly enough. right? The definition of judgment is definition itself. What the judgment really is, is who are you? Who are you? If someone would ask you, you know, who are you? It would be such a weird question. How would you answer such a question? Right. How do you define who a person is? You say what you do for a living. You say, you know, where you're from. That, that, is that you? You say your name. Is your name you? That's a hard question to answer. When we talk about you as an individual, you, Dan Coleman, who are you? How do you explain you as opposed to the guy down the street? It sort of comes down to we're defined by what we desire. Okay. So... I, the, the, what we desire might be a good indication, but who we are is really something that can't be put into words at all, which I think we, we all understand that. You know, anyone that can define who they are is uh, not a very sophisticated person at all, but I mean, it would cheapen anyone to try to put it into words. Right. Who we are is the, the snapshot of our spiritual character and, and an indication in addition to, you know, what we desire, that would be a good way for you to figure out for yourself, you know, where am I really? An exercise would be to go in and, and look, what do I really want? And why do I want that? And why do I want that? And get to the root of it. I think that might be something that we discussed uh, as a way to figure it out for yourself. But our own self-analysis aside, who we are objectively, which is impossible for us to be able to determine and for anyone else to see, is what is the essence of your spiritual character and that has been developed and built as a result of your free will choices, which is why we're in the world to begin with, right? So the best indication of who you are is if you would be placed in a morally challenging situation, what would you do? What decision would you make? And that would be an indication of your spiritual character. So I think a lot of, a lot of people also would think that that's an unfair test because it's really unknown. You know, what would I do in XYZ situation? I wouldn't know if I w- until I would really be in the situation. So there's two things to that. Number one is that we don't really know that because we lack the proper self-awareness and self-assessment to be able to truly and honestly answer for ourselves what we would do. Um, that doesn't mean that there isn't an answer. It means that we're just too out of touch with who we are and uh, not honest with ourselves and or lack the ability to make all the calculations. That's number one. But number two, which is the best argument, is we have free will. When you're in a situation, you can make a free will decision to do one or the other. So what you would do in any given situation, well, it depends. You have the choice. That's true in so much as you have free will. But what if theoretically your free will be plucked away from you? Then what would you do? You would make a decision, right? What would that decision be if your free will would be taken away from you? Well, if my free will was taken away, then... I would simply, I would simply be animated only by, by God's will. 
you would still have your character. You would still be an essence of, you know, you would still be Dan Coleman and you would be the product of what you've created up until that point. And this is what happens when we die. We'll we'll have no more free will. And in fact, we're taught when Mashiach comes, the largely free will will be taken away. Free will is the ability to use decisions to change our spiritual character, to change our spiritual character. But before we change it, we are somewhere. We think that we have free will with everything, but that's, it's really not true. In fact, our free will decisions are very limited. For example, you're walking down the street and you see an elderly woman carrying her purse. You know, are you tempted to go and mug her and steal her purse? Is that a challenge that you need to battle with? To Fortunately, that's not one that my Yetzirah has power over. Exactly, right? This is, that's a decision that's so far beneath you that it is not within the realm of your free will. It's, it's conquered territory, right? Wow. You're, you're too far above that. On the other hand, I want to ask you, but think, if you ask the average person, does that person use every single moment of their life for spiritual, spiritually productive purposes? You know, we all need downtime and that's necessary for growth, but are we perfectly calculating the amount of downtime we're giving ourselves or should we really be doing that or should we be doing something else that's spiritually productive? Are we utilizing literally every single moment perfectly for our spiritual growth? Probably not. I think most people can say that they're not doing that. And, but on top of that, just like it wouldn't be expected of you to be tempted to mug an old lady's purse, it wouldn't be expected of you to use every single moment productively. It's too far above. There's a middle range. There's a very small range where we actually have true free will, a true decision, should I do this or that? I think maybe for the average uh, good citizen, let's give an example. Maybe a person wouldn't reach into someone's wallet and take a dollar. But what if they're in the following situation? Let's say they go to, they're in a certain part of town that's an hour away from where they live. And they go to a grocery store while they're over there and pick up some things. And then they drive home. And when they get home through traffic, it took maybe an hour, 20 minutes to get back because of traffic. They get home, they empty their pockets and they count their change and they look at the receipt and they realize they got an extra dollar change from the store. What do they do then? It's very easy to start making you know, justifications. The clerk made a mistake. It wasn't my fault. The management expects these kinds of mistakes. It's factored into their finances and uh, it's just a dollar what difference does it make or will a person say i am now in possession of money that doesn't belong to me it doesn't matter what the amount is it's not mine it should go back to the store and you know if forget those calculate it's going to cost you more than a dollar in gas to right. drive all the way there and back and it's going to take you two hours plus but do you do it anyway because you're in possession of a dollar that's not yours that's a challenging situation to be in and, and it's is it the same thing as taking a dollar out of someone's wallet? No, but at, at the end of the day, you're in possession of a dollar that's not yours. These kinds of decisions, maybe that's a free will decision, right? Where you really have to battle with yourself. and Should I do it or should I not do it? So if your free will would be taken away, if God would override your free will, which is possible, he did it to Pharaoh, right? In times of Moses, if God would theoretically take away your free will, you would make a decision, you would either drive back with the dollar or you'd keep it. And whatever that is, is your spiritual character, right? You are a person that would do one or the other. So the question is, who are you? What is your spiritual character? You would be able to take you, the essence of your spiritual character, 
plug it into any scenario, any spiritually challenging, morally challenging scenario, and there would be an answer what you would do in any situation. That is who you are. That's who we're building ourselves um, to be. We're using our free will to advance ourselves and make ourselves more spiritual, more holy, uh, make better decisions. But at any given moment, there is a snapshot of who we potentially are, uh, who we actually are, not potentially. That is judgment. Rosh Hashanah is the day where God takes a snapshot. This is you. This is where you are. And if I would take you as you are right now, you would make XYZ decision in any given situation. Okay, so this is okay. the day of judgment. It's a day of definition. Who are you? And so it sounds like more of a, an assessment of where you are right now. That's what you're saying. So it's, it's a fully comprehensive assessment of not just you, of the entire world. You know, the state of the world, we human beings affect everything. Uh, we have this power that we affect the spiritual nature of animals and plants in the entire world. The entire world is judged, so to speak. What does that mean? It's, the entire world is defined. Uh, what is the spiritual state of the entire universe as defined by us human beings with our free will? So in preparation for that time, we have this month of Elul, as you said, where there's this extra boost. The king is in the field. He's making himself accessible to us because he wants us to have success in judgment. He wants us to have the maximum opportunity possible to define ourselves positively. We have this month of an extra boost of help that if we desire and if we want, we have a step up in upgrading our spiritual state, making decisions to, that, that might be more difficult throughout the rest of the year. But if we make them now, we make these decisions now, it's easier. And we can define ourselves in a more positive way more easily now than other times of the year. That's what it means that this is an auspicious time. So that's, that's the state that we're in right now. That's our current time period. Gotcha. Okay. Beautiful. Okay. After Rosh Hashanah, we move into Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur is really the reset. You know, these 10 days, starting with the first day of Rosh Hashanah and culminating with Yom Kippur, is really the, the whole reset stage. It starts with a definition first. Okay, who are you? Now that we've been defined, that's judgment, din, we move into rachamim, mercy. And mercy is the attribute which overrides judgment. It overrides definition. And it looks at not who you are, who you could be. What is your potential? If you would be given certain resources, could you grow past what you are now? Eliyahu Dessler uh, Zatzal wrote a very interesting analogy. I may have said it before on this podcast, but it's, uh, it's a very powerful analogy, so I'll say it again. To really understand how, what is the dynamic between din and rachamim, judgment and mercy. It gives the analogy of you have two kids that commit a crime, uh, the same crime. They do the exact same thing. One kid comes from a broken home. He's got no one. His parents have given up on him or they're not there. And he's grown up on the streets. He's gotten into terrible things, gang life, awful. The other kid comes from a good home. His parents are trying to raise him well. There's a good infrastructure that's in place if he would just go home and listen to his parents. But unfortunately, he's been influenced by his friend, this other kid, and they've gone out and committed this crime together. Now, they were equally complicit in this crime. They both did the exact same thing, and they both 
should be held accountable. So they're brought forth into judgment, and the judge looks at both of them. The first kid, the judge sentences him to juvie. And the second kid, the judge sends him home. Now, how do you explain that? Isn't that a distortion of judgment? The punishment that fits the crime is juvie. It's supposed to go to juvie. But the judge, he has a larger calculation in mind. But the purpose of punishment is not retribution and uh, revenge for society, you know, to, to punish these criminals. The purpose is rehabilitation. The ultimate goal is for these kids to improve and to have a better life. So the, in terms of strict judgment, what does a kid deserve when he commits this crime? Juvie. He needs to go. Okay? So for the first kid, that's the best option for him. He needs to understand that there are consequences for his actions. If he wouldn't be punished, he'll only learn that he can get away with it, and it'll further reinforce this bad behavior. He'll go back to the streets. He'll do worse things, and, uh, and he'll, he'll end up worse off if he's not punished. The second kid, the judge says, hold on, if I send him to juvie, which is the punishment, there should be, there should be some sort of uh, repercussions for his actions. If I send him to juvie, he's going to make more friends with criminals. I'm going to take him out of school. He's not going to have the opportunities that are available to him to give him a better life. If I send him home, there's a chance that his parents can put him back on the right track. There is an infrastructure that's waiting for him. There's a better option here than sending him to juvie. Let's give him another chance. The first kid doesn't have that option. Unfortunately for him, it's not his fault. It's not fair, but he doesn't have that option. There's no infrastructure for him. The best option for the first kid is to go to juvie. The best option for the second kid is to have another chance at home. The first case is Din, second case is Rachamim. And in fact, Rav Dessler says that Rachamim, mercy, in fact, agrees with judgment in the first case because Rachamim is interested in the best possible scenario, right? Mercy is the best possible. We're not just letting people off the hook if it's not good for them. What mercy is, Rachamim is, we're going to override judgment. Again, what the kid deserves, he has to go to juvie. That's the punishment for the crime. Rachamim says, no, I have a better option. What's our ultimate goal is for the kid to be rehabilitated, re- to be reintegrated into society and to, to grow. I have a better option. We're going to override judgment. So this is the stage that we move into after Rosh Hashanah. The first stage is, who are we? What have we done with our lives? How have we used our free will and our spiritual decisions to define ourselves? Once that's been established, now we have a 10-day period of mercy where we have an opportunity to redefine ourselves even after it's been done and tear up the decree. And that's this mercy of coming back because, you know, tshuva, as you know, means to return, going back home. This second kid, he's got an infrastructure back home. We are children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are spiritually rooted in giants of holiness. We have an option of going back home to the infrastructure that, that's been set up for us millennia ago. So that's this time of Rachamim, this time of mercy leading up to Yom Kippur, where we have an opportunity to redefine ourselves, to come back home, to do tshuva, and say, what I've done up until now, those have been my actions, I've made mistakes, but that's not who I really am. Who I really am is this potential that's deep down inside, the essence of my soul that's yearning to do what Hashem wants, that's yearning to give expression to my spiritual character, to my soul. That's who I really am. Even though I haven't yet expressed it, give me another chance. 
So that's the stage of Yom Kippur. And here I think we're already seeing how this is a process that's leading to, as I mentioned before, the redemption of the soul. Now we've gone through Yom Kippur. We've come out with a clean slate. We've hit the reset button. Again, ideally, right? We've ideally done this tshuva and we've hit the reset button. We've got our second chance. What do we do with it? So now throughout this process of Tammuz and Av, where we have been mourning over the broken state of our relationship with God. We went through Elul, where we've yearned to be closer, and we've tried to build that relationship. Now we're in Tishrei, where it's a very interesting dynamic of this relationship that we're building with Hashem throughout this month. Let's look at it. We start with Rosh Hashanah. How do we relate to God in Rosh Hashanah? He's the king. The king has a relationship with his subjects, but it's pretty distant. It's, It's... probably the most impersonal relationship that you can have with a person that he is my king, I'm my subject. The fact that I'm using personal pronouns, my king, indicates a relationship. He's my king, I'm his subject. So there is a relationship there, but it's still very distant. I am a poor servant and he is the king. That's Rosh Hashanah. We move a little bit more intimate. On Yom Kippur, we refer to Hashem as our Father. And our Father is merciful over His children. We, we pray on Yom Kippur, treat us like a father has mercy over his children. And we're moving forward in this intimacy, but still there's a distance there between a father and a child. A king and a servant, is, the distance is great. A father and a child is already familial. We're blood, we're family already. But there's still, there's still a distance. You have to maintain respect. You have to you know, maintain your distance. It's close, there's love, but still distant. Sukkot is a time of complete intimacy. That's when we, quote-unquote, marry Hashem. Right? This is a time where we relate to Hashem, not as a king, not as a father, but as a spouse, where there's an intimate love, and it's full of joy. Juxtaposed to the time of Av, where we're mourning about the distance that we have from Hashem, now that we've been purified, and we've been forgiven and clean-slated, after Yom Kippur, now we can have a true, beautiful, intimate closeness with God and this just ecstasy. We call Sukkot the time of our joy, Zman Simchaseinu. And it's this just party. It's a party for seven days, reminiscent of the seven-day party of marriage. People are unaware of this that are listeners to your podcast. The way a Jewish marriage works is after the wedding, there's seven days of celebration afterwards. And I'm not making this up. This is the Talmud makes this correlation. Talmud says that the first seven days of Sukkot is like the Sheva Brachas, the seven-day celebration after a wedding, okay. where he even invites all of the nations to come celebrate. And it's spoken about prophetically that in the times of Mashiach, during Sukkot, other nations will come and bring sacrifices at the temple. And we're all celebrating together. Everyone's coming to celebrate the marriage, so to speak, of the Jewish people and Hashem. It's very intimate closeness. Beautiful. So why in the sukkah? What is the essence of being outside and being in that structure in order to have that type of celebratory event? Well, there's a lot to speak about about this. Maybe we could do another podcast or you can do it with someone else on, the, uh, on sukkahs alone. If you were to summarize the sure. nature as being a temporary dwelling for this. So one, one idea that's already connects very much to what I was saying is that the sukkah is reminiscent of a marriage canopy. Oh, right. Yes. 
So that that's already one idea. The main concept is that we, you know, what really fits into um, not this structure of relationship intimacy that we've been building to, but the larger picture that I mentioned earlier of the redemption of the body, the redemption of the spirit, and the redemption of the soul is what Sukkot is all about is the neshama, the soul. And the soul is completely spiritual with no connection to the physical whatsoever. That's the time we focus on. We leave our homes, we leave the permanence of the world, and we go outside where everything is very transitory, and we sleep under a transitory structure. In fact, the Torah says it should be a a structure that you sleep in for seven days. The Talmud says that it's not just a structure that you live in for seven days, it is a seven-day structure. It must be built in a way that has some inherent ephemeral quality to it. So that really brings out the idea of we're focusing on the neshama, the purely spiritual. And there's a word that goes together with this. In Hebrew, it's called prishus. In English, we say abstinence. Okay. Okay? Abstinence is a complete rejection of the physical. Now, for, for many, I won't say all, for many other spiritual traditions in the world, from other nations, this is considered to be the height of spirituality is complete abstinence from physicality. A complete rejection of the physical world where you go and you, you imagine these uh, holy people sitting on a mountaintop and just transcending, right? Not eating, not sleeping, no connection to people, just becoming completely spiritual. I mean, what's higher than that, right? So that is true for most people in the world. The highest level of spirituality is a complete detachment from physicality and becoming completely connected and completely identifying with your spiritual nature, the neshama. And non-Jews have a neshama. It's a totally spiritual part of the self. And that's why, as well, the non-Jews of the world, the, all the other nations of the world, have some sort of connection to the holiday of Sukkot. They come during Sukkot and bring their sacrifices at the temple. Everyone can relate to this idea. Precious, abstinence, total spirituality. But... There is a stage above that as well that's unique to the Jewish people. The Svas Emes, great Hasidic master, explained that the three festivals parallel, as I've said before, the Nefesh, the Ruach, and the Neshama. Pesach, Passover, is the Nefesh, the animating life force. Ruach, the connection, is Shavuos, when we got the Torah. Sukkot, as we just mentioned, is the Neshama. Shemini Atzeres, the eighth day after Sukkot, What's that? The Sfasema says it's what's called the Neshama Yaseira that we get on Shabbos. That's what it parallels. What's the Neshama Yaseira? We're taught in the Talmud that on Shabbos we have what, what our sages call Neshama Yaseira, which you could translate it as more soul, extra soul. What does that mean? Right. Rashi describes it as, you know, he says, you can eat more on Shabbos. That's what he says. <laughs> what does that mean? So a, a lot of people hear this and erroneously say that it means you can eat as much as you want on Shabbos and you won't get fat. That's wrong. <laughs> you will get fat. In fact, it's a mitzvah to get fat. The Baal Ma'or, another uh, ancient commentator from the medieval times, he says that it's a mitzvah, a it's a mitzvah to get fat on Shabbos. Eat a lot. Yeah, you'll get fat. It's going to happen. So what does it mean that you can eat more? What does the Neshama Yaseir really do? The Neshama Yaseira, says the Svas Emes, is that what it does is it allows you to eat more 
without being, without succumbing to the illusion of physicality. What's higher than precious? What's higher than abstinence, complete spirituality with a complete rejection of physicality? The only thing that's higher than that is to become fully immersed in physicality and still be only interacting with spirituality. You, you know the scene in The Matrix where Neo finally looks, he's, he's in The Matrix and he gets shot by the agent and then he kind of cocks his head and he sees, he sees the code. He realizes in the moment as he's interacting with the world that it's really just a construct. The highest level is to be fully integrated and immersed in physicality, interacting with physicality, using the world for purely spiritual purposes. And it seems impossible. And for most people in the world, it is. And this is the unique power that was granted to the Jewish people when we received the Torah, that we have gained this ability to use physicality for spirituality. The Torah enables us to do that. There's nothing special about how we were born. We have access to this. We chose this path, and Hashem gave us the tool. We have the Torah. We install the software. Remember this analogy? We've downloaded and installed the software. What does that do for us? That allows us to be in the matrix, to be in the world in physicality, and use it purely for spiritual purposes. This is a stage that goes even beyond pure spirituality. And that's why on Shemini Atzeres, it's really Simchas Torah, this may be a, a, an aspect of confusion. I don't want to confuse your listeners too much. Shemini Atzeres and Simchas Torah on a Torah level are really the same day. Rabbinically, there are two days to every umtiv outside of the land of Israel. Okay. We refer to them as different names. The first day we call Shemini Atzeres and the second day we call Simchas Torah. Simchas Torah is really just the Yom Tov Sheni, the second day Yom Tov of Shemini Atzeres. Okay. So in Israel, they, in Jerusalem, I guess, they... It's one day. Shemini Atzeres is Simchas Torah. Gotcha. Okay. It's it's really the same day. So on that day, let's say in Israel, let's keep things very simple. What they do in Israel is after the seven days of sukkahs, on the eighth day of Shemini Atzeres, no more sukkah. You come back inside. And it, it might seem like very anticlimactic. If you don't understand this lesson that we just went through, you're building up and building up Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. You've purified yourself. We're building up. Finally, we go into the sukkah and we're at the height of spirituality and we're building this intense closeness, this intimacy where you're sharing this space within the sukkah with the Shekhinah, with the divine presence of God. And then all of a sudden, the pinnacle of all of it we've been building up to, finally, after sukkah, it's the final day, the end of the whole system, Shemini Atzeres, you go back into your house and you just don't work. And that's really all it is. The Torah says doesn't describe anything about the holiday. It's just don't work. Just have a holiday. Right. There's no, there's no special mitzvah. We don't shake a lulav. We don't sit in a sukkah. We don't do anything. Just go back to your normal life. Okay, okay, don't, don't do work, right? It's a holiday. But what happened? But that's the idea. We don't need the sukkah anymore. We've been building up. The sukkah was a tool. That's, we've now acquired this power of engaging in spirituality. And once we've moved through precious of abstinence, okay, we've accomplished that. Now we're imbued with the power of returning to the world, reintegrating and taking it all with us and living in the world and still seeing God. Right, which is the entire reason for this world, is for us to, to do this. So that's the whole system from, from start to finish. Why were things set up so that we complete the Torah at Semchaz Torah and start over again. It seems 
like we would be starting over at the beginning. Like it would start like at the beginning of the year as Pesach, the tour would begin there. I know it wouldn't fit into the narrative, but there's, there, it, it seems a little, well, it seems almost, I guess, after we're going through that process, you're starting the tour over again because you're almost starting the process over again to some degree. Yeah. On Simchas Torah, we read the first parsha of Bereshis, at least the first section of it. There, there's no end, right? We, we complete that cycle then because, again, the cycle that we're moving through now, this six-month process, it begins with Pesach, it ends with Shemini Atzeres. The winter months were meant to live like this. And we have a couple of rabbinic holidays, which they're also, they have an objective spirituality to them. There's an energy to that as well. Hanukkah gives us the energy to take us through the rest of the winter. Purim is above everything. That's for a different podcast. But this process is really, it starts at Pesach and ends Sukkot. So we, we culminate our, our development process with Shemini Atzeres, with Simchas Torah, in, uh, outside the land of Israel. And we restart the Torah then to prepare. Are you asking, why do we not make it a six-month Torah reading? Like, start the Torah? No, I, I, was, just, I was just curious if there was a... When, when would you suggest, what would make more sense to you? When, when the Torah resets, when we start over again? Well, at the beginning of the year, but that would make sense because it would be Pesach. And obviously, we wouldn't be in that area of the Torah. But we would also end it, meaning that we don't want to only read... It's a six-month process, right, from Pesach until, until Sukkot. So that's our development process, gotcha. only six months. Okay. So if we're going to read the, the Torah all year long, the end point and the start point we want to have at the finish of our right. process. Right, okay, gotcha. Because everything up into the, 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 the story of the period in Egypt, everything else was just sort of, is a build-up to that point. Okay. Rabbi, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate that. Giving uh, us clarity on the days in front of us and the construct. Hopefully the listeners will not go into a state of trepidation as they go into Rosh Hashanah. A little trepidation is good. That's true. That's true. Does you, you got to have some motivation to go through, review the previous year. Things you need to work on. I do want to have a follow-up question, though. You know, everyone's right at this point where you're going through all the things you've done and looking at trying to identify things that you've error, things you need to improve, people you need to ask forgiveness from. Of course, things you need to ask forgiveness from, from Hashem. What about things that you're overlooking? That's my concern. My concern is always what I don't know, what I am, am unaware of. A lot of times I've upset my wife and I had literally no idea until she told me. So, I mean, sometimes I can be sort of clueless and be blindsided. How, how do you do teshuva for those type things? So the, uh, there's a two-part answer to this. Number one, after the fact, you know, when we're right now, how do we do tshuva for all the things that we've done that we're not aware of? That's actually built into the tshuva process. When we say vidui, when we say our confession, we mention specifically the things that I'm aware of, the things that I'm not aware of. You know, I, please forgive me for all of those things. And there's nothing I can do about it now. I can't uh, identify the things that I don't know that I've done wrong. But I know that there are things that I've done that I don't know about. And to be aware of that already is, a, you know, is good. It's a good step yes. to acknowledge that there are things that I've done wrong that I'm not aware of and to ask forgiveness for that. There's nothing more you can do if you don't know exactly what it is. Now, that's part one to the answer. Part two to the answer is why, why aren't you aware of it? 
You know, how can you ensure that you won't be in the same spot next year? Yeah. And the trick is to not wait until, you know, once a year to get your act together. Right. The Masil Sisharim, the Ramchal, the great Kabbalist and guide for the Jewish people, he wrote that if we try to navigate life on our own, try to figure it out, we will for sure be lost. The world is a maze and it's designed in a way to be illusory and, uh, and confusing and misleading. And we look at paths that appear to us to be good and correct and proper and it's wrong. And it leads us down a bad path and has unforeseen consequences. So how, how do we get through? He said, you have to listen to the advice of people that have gone through the path already. He gives the, uh, an analogy of the hedge maze. These big hedge mazes and the, the goal through the maze is you get to this big elevated gazebo in the middle. I guess they were designed like that in Italy where he was from. Uh, so while you're in the maze, there's no way to know which, which path is the right path. But if you have someone that's already standing in the gazebo and he is standing above everything, he's been through the maze and he sees it all laid out in front of you, he sees where you are and he can guide you, you listen to his advice. He Listen to him to tell you where to go. Right. And this is part of what the Torah says, that we're commanded to listen to the sages left or right. And Rashi says, even if what you think is right, they're telling you that it's left, you listen to them. This is what it means. We, we, we think that one path... You know. so anyway... What, he says, what is the advice that they're telling us? There's one piece of advice. How do you get through life? Bo cheshbon. Make a spiritual accounting. This is the secret. A lot of people know it. Very few people do it. It's, you know, like I, we mentioned in the very beginning of the podcast, if you ask God for help, you know, take away my desire to smoke. Take, give me a desire to learn Torah. It's amazing how easily it's given. What's hard is to remember to ask God in the first place. It's very easy to know what the solution is. Make a spiritual accounting. Very difficult to put it into practice. The Sahara knows that that's the secret to true growth and will do anything it can to prevent you from doing this. You, every single day, you look back in your day, what did I do that was good? What did I do that was bad? The things that I did that were good, how can I improve them? What was holding me back? You have a business, you do an accounting of your business. You have a life, you do an accounting of your life every single day. That gives you an awareness of what you're doing. It opens your eyes because once you start doing that accounting, you start paying attention throughout the day. You start becoming more aware because you know you're going to have to do an accounting at the end of the day. It, right. it heightens your spiritual awareness, your moral awareness all the time. So the first part of the answer is there's always going to be things that you've overlooked, things that you're completely unaware of. For that, you, ha- you just have to ask for mercy and forgiveness for, you know, I know there are things that I did that I don't know. Please forgive me for that. There's nothing more you can do. What you can also do is commit to making sure that that won't happen in the future, at least to mitigate it as much as possible by increasing your awareness, by doing a daily accounting of your spiritual state. Thank you so much, Rabbi. I appreciate he's always coming on. I, always, uh, I, I know the audience does too. And I think this will prepare us all for uh, to really embrace the, the upcoming holidays and make sure when we get on the roller coaster ride that when we land that we are. And when the ride is over, we are in a much higher place. So thank you so much. God willing. I wish you a chasima, the chasima tova, a good writing, an inscription, and a ceiling for a positive judgment for you and all the listeners to your podcast all the people that support the podcast and all the Jews in the entire world and all the people in the world. Amen. Amen.
Thank you so much, Rabbi. Thank you. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.